every major information-based tech invention that has created billionaires was built on top of the foundation laid by librarians and library science. And if you really think about it, it's absolutely true. Apple's knowledge bar was in place for decades in libraries. We called it the reference desk. From UW-Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson-Edge. Today on the pod, how women shape the American library system with UW-Tacoma Library Director and Associate Dean of University Libraries, Annie Downey. Early libraries were private and exclusive, but women helped change them to what we know today. Libraries provided women with opportunity that was rare for the time, but that doesn't mean they were allowed to truly be themselves. Rampant sexism and racism, including by Melville Dewey, creator of the Dewey Decimal System, permeated libraries in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Women's contributions to the library were actively suppressed and may have been forgotten if not for the women's rights movements of the 1960s. We'll talk with Downey about the current effort to preserve this past, as well as the role libraries play today. Annie Downey, welcome to Pod Defiance. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So my first question is, so what, when, we, when we're thinking about libraries and uh, and the library system in the United States, I think something that a lot of people don't know is that women played a pretty important role in the development of, of libraries and the library system. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. So I would say that women played the most important role um, in library development. Um, American librarianship, as we know it, was created in the mid to late 1800s. And it was very quickly considered a suitable profession for upper and middle class educated women um, because they would be working in an environment that um, was thought of as being sort of refined. They were people that could influence the culture in some way. So it felt like this was something that was acceptable for women to do. There was a bit of an educational element to it. Um, which women were already okay to be teachers. There was also a caretaking element that fit along with nursing um, as well as social work. So librarianship for a lot of women felt like it kind of pulled from all of those areas. So it felt like a really good thing for women to do. And then they were welcomed into the profession, most notably by Columbia University College then um, and Melville Dewey who created the first professional library school. So he's often considered this person that was so wonderful for women. He provided all of these opportunities. Um, and in many cases, that's true. So in 1886, he went around and he invited women, especially from the women's colleges at the time, um, to come and do a library degree when they finished with their undergrad. And so then in 1888, they graduated their first class from Columbia and it included 19 women and one man. Um, so while they believed um, that they would be able to help their communities as women, um, they also thought that women should be pretty close to whatever their, um, whatever the acceptable gender identity was for women at the time. So some, some kind of noteworthy um, timeline moments is that um, 
By 1910, 78.5% of library workers in the United States were women. And then by 1920, 90% of librarians were women. And um, that number held steady for many decades. And we're only just now starting to see that shift um, a bit. And in the ways that it shifted the most is that men have often been hired into libraries and very quickly elevated into leadership roles. So most men in libraries have also been leaders for the majority of the time that librarianship um, has been around in the United States. One thing I, I, I thought was fascinating, and I, I, I watched a talk you recently gave about librarians, um, particularly uh, women librarians, and you talked about sort of the differences, especially in the late 1800s, between librarians on the East Coast and then those sort of out West. And, and in my mind, when I think of like out West in like the eight, late 1800s, sort of like the Wild West, sort of like I imagine spittoons and it's dusty and maybe a little lawless. Um, but there was this also this other thing going on with libraries and, and, and the West. So I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a really fascinating um, way that librarianship um, sort of diverted in the different regions of the country, but also in ways that we stayed sort of the same. Um, I will say I've always been a West Coast librarian myself, and so sort of identify as, you know, we're, we're not going to go into rap, but, you know, I'm West Coast versus East Coast. Um, and so I, there is a spirit, I think, that came with um, American Western expansion and the librarians that came with it. Obviously, this is a really fraught history. One of the things that a lot of these librarians that um, went to the West we're interested in is this idea of Americanization, um, which of course the way that played out was um, through things like um, Indian schools um, and trying to sort of eliminate other people's culture. So, so it is a fraught history and I wanna be sure that I'm clear about that. But then at the same time, in terms of gender, it was really an opportunity for women to expand their roles. So. The East Coast librarians, um, most of them went to the women's colleges. Um, they were upper middle class. Sometimes they were middle, mid middle class, but they, they were mostly from upper middle class families um, that were highly educated. And they were looking for opportunities outside of traditional gender roles, but not quite in the same way that a lot of the librarians that moved west were. Um, so as the, the, because those librarians were really searching for a very independent lifestyle. Um, they were often looking for ways to escape traditional dress, action, and lifestyle. Um, this obviously created a lot of backlash within um, the communities and within the profession, but it was also a time that there was a lot of expanding of different types of roles going on. And within the libraries that were developing on the West Coast, a lot of them were funded um, primarily by these women's organizations that were establishing themselves to try to make the, the West um, civilized. So they were very interested in civilizing the West. Um, and so while they are pushing against a lot of things that were prescribed for them, they were also pushing forward a lot of things that were prescribed for others. And so it, that makes the, the history a little bit 
complicated and hard to sort of say they were totally right. Um, but at the same time, because they did have this pioneering spirit, they were able to expand, especially public libraries, in a really um, impressive way, um, especially in California and um, all along the West Coast. But really, California did a lot of huge expansion early on because of their pioneering librarians. It seems to me that I think a lot of people don't think of libraries as sort of radical. And I think radical in terms of revolutionary, right? Like the positive sense, like it's pushing for some sort of change. So it feels like libraries were part of like that, that feminist movement of the time. Is that, is that accurate? Totally accurate. Um, it's, it's, it's another thing that's kind of interesting because I think that while women felt um, these are women that had a, a a lot of them did have a, a certain amount of power in their lives, um, their work lives and their personal lives. Um, many of the one, many of the librarians that are sort of the most documented, of course, are the ones that had the most wealth. And so in some cases, um, they had taken care of parents and then parents died and then they were independently wealthy so they could do this work. That was really common in um, Oregon in particular. Um, and so there, there were, so they had these, they had this certain level of power in a lot of ways. Um, and so they wanted to maintain that power and they wanted to see um, expansion of women's rights, but they were also really careful about how they pursued that. So we have some librarians that were really staunch um, suffragists, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit more, a couple of those. But then there were also librarians like um, Marvelia Cornyn. Um, and, and Ida Kidder in Oregon, who were both in favor um, of women's rights, but would not say out loud that they were in favor of the vote for women. Um, while we have other librarians like Grace um, Hebert, who was out in Wyoming, who was like, no, we, we need votes for women. That's part of how we push um, rights forward. So, so they were kind of careful with what they did. And this shows up even more um, as we move into um, the, the 1920s when there started to be a real backlash against um, independent women and the use of the word spinster and this idea, um, which was really, um, which was really about labeling these women as lesbians. Um, and they didn't want that. They didn't want that either. And they kind of didn't know what to do with that label. Um, and, but they did see that it was going to diminish their power in some way. So it was, it was a little bit of that, that kind of social movement um, work where, we move forward, but we're a little careful. And then if it feels like it's a little bit, you know, if we're going a little too far, maybe we'll back up. Um, they they were really good about kind of being careful about where they could push and where they had to pull back. And we see in the history that those that didn't figure out how to pull back, they just lost their careers. So it was either you figure out how to do that or you need to go find a different profession. You're telling the story of sort of what I see as America as sort of this painfully slow incremental progress that maybe is sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes it's like two steps forward and three steps back kind of thing. So that's interesting. This is also playing out within the world of the library. Um, that's fascinating. It's like a little microcosm of American history. I want to turn our attention for a minute um, 
to someone I think a lot of people know the last name, but not much else, and maybe the Dewey Decimal System. But this person, uh, Melville Dewey, um, which until I watched your presentation, I, I thought the Dewey Decimal System, that's all I know about you. Um, and, you know, there is a sort of a sense of like, I kind of now only, I wish that's all I knew about you, but that's not, that's not really how we should operate anymore is sort of like, oh, we should, we should be demystifying these figures and be like, uh, they were people who had some good ideas and who also had some really terrible ones who made, you know, they were people. So let's talk about Melville Dewey and specifically, you know, his attitudes about, about women. So Melville Dewey was another really complicated person in library history. And also I would just say in American history, um, because he did have a really huge role in helping women to advance in professions. Um, And so I don't think that we can say that that is not true. But at the same time, he was very sexist and very racist in action and in belief. Um, he did not hold back. He did not feel like he had to hold back. He was a man of power. Um, he was a he was a person that um, hired women in part because he knew that he could control them and pay them less. And he didn't mind saying that out loud. Um, but then at the same time. Even when I became a librarian 20 years ago, um, this was not commonly known amongst librarians that Melville Dewey was such a problematic character. Um, so I think that's interesting, too, that like that that history took so long when it's documented. It's it's not a hidden history, um, but it took so long to sort of for us to comprehend that as a profession. Um So he really matters um, because he started the first library journal. He started the first library school. He planned the first American Library Association conference. He developed the most dominant classification system in libraries. Um, He capped his career off with a business selling library supplies. So even when he finally, within the profession at the time, reached a point that he kind of wasn't accepted into the society, um, he still was working with librarians and still profiting. Um, he did a lot of library outreach and he helped to plan the late Placid Winter Olympics. So he has this really, <laughs> he has this really big um, history and influence, but he is also what I think of as library history, history's Harvey Weinstein. Um, he sexually assaulted so many women um, and he, and, and it was known, it was not hidden. Um, and there were women at the time that knew that he did that and also still upheld him because he was their mentor and he provided them um, with their careers in many cases. So a very problematic person um, and also, yeah, hugely influential. And so it, it's another one of those things of like, it's almost impossible to, to separate these two things um, because while he he lifted women up in the profession at the same time, his justification for that was that you didn't have to pay them as much. They would work really hard and you don't have to pay them as much. So of course you should hire these women. And that set in motion the salary problems that we still have in libraries to this day. What do we do with this legacy for Dewey? Like, should we be even be calling it the Dewey Decimal System anymore? Like, teaching small children that this is called the Dewey Decimal System? 
That is, you know, I've never even thought about whether or not we should be calling it the Dewey Decimal System with children. So I, I really thank you for bringing that up. I should say that in academic libraries, we use the Library of Congress classification system. So I hardly ever think about the Dewey Decimal System, <laughs> but it is true. It is what's used in um, schools and public libraries all over the country. Um, I, of course, think that, yes, this is a part of library history and we should be talking about it. Um, and I and one of the reasons that I think we should be talking about it is because I do think that um, that it sounds like it was a long time ago, but history um, history just has a way of kind of keep coming back. Right. And and so it seems like it was a long time ago, but the legacy that it created um, to to sort of to put women in this particular place, it stays with us. And I think that it's important that we are talking about that. So I think it's really important to grapple with that legacy to make sure that we understand that um, it, it wasn't just here, women, here's this profession where you can be really successful. It was here is a profession that you can enter because we have figured out a way to make sure that you work really hard and we men reap most of the rewards. So let's let's move on from gross gross men. Uh, <laughs> and you talked about a lot of what I'm about to ask, but I think the specific question I have about women in in libraries, especially during those early years, and you sort of touched on it, but I'm curious as to what was so appealing to, to women of this time, like about being a librarian, right? You, you touched on it, but I wonder if there's more, more to it. Yeah, I think at, at the time, um, there obviously were not a lot of opportunities for women and librarianship. Um, it filled up, it's, it filled a few different roles that um, especially middle-class and upper-middle-class women found appealing at the time. Um, one of them is if we think about that, this was a time period um, when social work was also growing and whole house and nursing and um, these sort of women's professions that are about um, civilizing American society and also taking care of the people and sort of bringing um, in some ways, bringing the maternal aspects of women into the professions um, in a meaningful way where women didn't also have to be mothers. So a lot of it was that librarianship was seen as one of the few professions, um, I would say even more than, than teaching, in that you could go in as a woman and you could do this your whole career. You, would, you didn't necessarily have to ever get married. Um, whereas teachers were usually thought they're going to teach for a while and then they're going to get married. Um, and librarians had a similar trajectory where if they got married, they would usually um, retire, leave the library profession. Um, so, so it was one of the few professions where women really could just be a librarian for life. Um, they could move up, they could do it forever. It wasn't going to go away. Um, it also, um, gave them opportunities to really grow the community in meaningful ways to have a real impact on what the community would be like that was outside of religion. Um, a lot of women's work, especially charity work, was confined to religious contexts. And this was, uh, this and librarianship was a possibility to do that kind of community building outside of religion. Um, 
And then it was also, um, it was just, it was in many ways, especially for the Western librarians, it was thought of as almost missionary work um, that they were, they were building the community. But then at the same time, um, there was a, it was academic, it was intellectual and women really did not have a lot of opportunities to do intellectual work. Um, and especially when women were graduating from the women's colleges for the first time, they were looking for opportunities to be intellectual in some way. Um, and librarianship is a really intellectual profession. It's not always seen in that way, but when you're doing it, it is a very intellectual profession. And I think that that was just very appealing to a lot of women that had no other opportunities. When we say women, it sounds like we're specifically talking about white women, particularly white women of means. Is that is that correct? Yes and no. Um, so the, another thing that is kind of fascinating about this time period is that some of the some of the early professional librarians were actually um, actually their contracts were not renewed when the when there was a male board that saw that maybe a woman that had just lost a husband or didn't have another way to support herself needed a job. So. Um, so it was women of means, um, but then they also could be pushed out if it was seen that there was a woman that came along that needed needed some sort of help making a living. Um, so that's kind of an interesting that happened. Interesting thing that happened. Um, the other thing is that um, there were there were African American women librarians. Um, their history is really hard to uncover. Um, they primarily worked um, in Black communities. And so just like with a lot of um, research into Black communities, it's hard to figure out where exactly the librarians were and where they fit, but they were there. We just don't have a lot of historical evidence to, to talk about it and to show the work that they did. Uh, that that is really good to know, and um, sort of touches on a question I have a little bit later. But you know, we've talked for most of the time, sort of in the abstract, and I wonder if we could um, hone in on a couple folks who I think have some pretty interesting stories. I'm thinking of Tessa Kelso, and then Grace Hebbard. Is that how you say your last name? Grace Hebbard. That's how I say it. I hope I'm right. <laughs> I'm going to go with how you said it because that that was my best guess. So I wonder if you could sort of tell us some of tell us their stories. Yes, two super fascinating women. Um, both of these both of these librarians are people that um, they did not start their careers as librarians. They were sort of drawn into library work, um, and they were also both gender nonconforming um, in almost every way. Um, so. Tessa Kelso was the sixth city librarian for Los Angeles, um, the Los Angeles City Library. She became the librarian in 1889. She was only there for six years, but she's um, she's often thought of as the person that really established the LA public library system. Um, in her first year, she moved the library to City Hall, um, and after just six years, she had grown the collection from 12,000 items to 330,000. So she had a huge impact, and she did a lot of that by breaking the rules. Um, 
that were sort of already established. She got rid of membership fees. So libraries, um, when libraries were first established, they were often membership libraries that you had to pay fees for. Um, The public library movement that women led was really about um, opening libraries up and getting rid of that membership aspect. So she abolished membership fees. She agitated for open stacks. So something a lot of people don't know is that American libraries are pretty unique in that we have open collections so that you could just browse the collections. Many international libraries still have closed stacks where we have to go and ask somebody to get the book for you and bring it to you. Um, So we have been doing this for a really long time and it was really um, unheard of at the time. And she also established the first systematic training for library employees. So she established the first um, training program for librarians on the West Coast. So uh, historian John Bruckman, I like the way he described her as tough, practical, and dedicated, possessor of a large and liberal vision coupled with a healthy contempt for fussy detail. This thoroughly unconventional women well supplied the energetic leadership which the movement required. Um, some other things that she did, she was, um, a suffragist. She was a very vocal advocate of women's rights. Um, and she defied all sorts of conventions that, um, the male board members in Los Angeles did not like, such as she wore her hair short. She didn't wear a hat. She smoked cigarettes. Um, the Charles Loomis, who became the city librarian of Los Angeles, a few years later, said that she was the best man ever to hold the job. Um, He described her as a woman of extraordinary business ability, quenchless energy, and a great executive force. Um, And so Tessa Kelso, one of my favorite things about her, she is the one that took on Melville Dewey. Melville Dewey harassed her life partner, librarian Adelaide Hass, who also started at the LA Public Library, and then moved on to become an extremely influential, and I know people will think this is funny, famous librarian um, because of her work with government documents. She revolutionized the government publishing office, and so a lot of the government documents that we get today are because of her work. Um, Anyway, so Melville um, harassed Adelaide. So in 1924, he was trying to host um, New York Library Association's Library Week at his Lake Placid estate. And Tessa protested to um, the New York Library Association board saying, for many years, women librarians have been the special prey of Mr. Dewey and a series of outrages against decency, having serious and far-reaching effects upon his victims. And she got it canceled. They did not have the meeting there. Um, Another thing that she did that I just, I cannot help but really enjoy is personally, as a local Methodist minister accused her of sin when the library stocked a book that offended him and she sued him for slander. And it was, the case was settled in her favor in 1895. So she's wonderful just to like, she's just fascinating to read about. Um, Grace Hebbard um, was another gender nonconforming librarian. Um, She was a successful engineer before she decided that she wanted to have a career in higher education. So she went to the University of Wyoming, convinced them to put her on the board, um, and then convinced them to give her a paid position on their board as secretary. 
Um, and then she became the university's first librarian. So that was in 1894. Um, and she established the library from what she called a sack of books um, that she found in a small locked room in the university. She stayed in that role as librarian until 1919. Um, and grew that sack of books into 42,000 volumes. She, um, she was never married. She had no children. She was the, state, she was the state's champion in golf and tennis. Um, and she was hugely active um, in this Americanization movement. Um, and so one of the things that she did as part of that was that she was very interested, um, and she was a historian, so she was very interested in um, understanding indigenous history. And so she wrote a pretty problematic biography of Sacagawea. But one of the reasons that it was problematic is because she went with, um, she used as fact a lot of the myths that she learned from talking to people that were living on the land at the time, as opposed to using archival records because there weren't very many. Um, but one of the things that one of her, um, I've, I've been reading her journal that she wrote after her partner died. Um, her partner was a professor at the University of Wyoming named Agnes Wergland, who came from Germany. Um, they bought a house together. Um, they had a little resort together that they, a little retreat um, out in the woods that they bought together. Um, and so they were planning a trip across the state when Agnes died. And so she, so um, Grace was very sad and she was mourning at the time, um, but she still had a good time on this trip. And one of the things that she talked about was one of the talks that she gave um, and she, you know, presented, she gave some pictures, she's presenting the history of Wyoming. And she says that, um, and this was a gathering of women. And she says, like many others, the gathering was particularly taken with those cowboy pictures, which I had taken sitting astride Miss Taylor's beautiful Southern saddle horse, Prince, with a divided skirt made from skin decorated on the side with fringed buckskin, a border around the bottom of the skirt, the front of rattlesnake skins, and here and there decorated with green beaded rattlers. The pictures of her are incredible um, because... And she's wearing pants and different ones. She talks about in her journal, she talks about the reception that she got at some of the front desks as she was traveling. Um, one man saying, that's a very odd outfit you have on. Um, and, and so she talks a lot about her dress and how it, how it impacted the people that she ran into, which is one of the things I think is fascinating about her. You know, I think one of the reasons we're having, we're able to have such a rich conversation is that this history is sort of alive now uh, in a way that I felt from listening to your earlier talk wasn't necessarily all the, always true, that there seemed to be an active effort to sort of stamp, tamp out this history, repress it, but, you know, this seems to have changed. So I guess my question is sort of what, what, is, what has changed? There's a few things that happened. Um, one is um, the women's movement of the 60s and 70s. That was just a time when um, women historians were very interested in uncovering a lot of women's history that had been buried. And that included librarians. Um, and librarians 
we're um, we're very active in the women's movement. It's it's interesting because there was a New York Times um, opinion piece this morning that I read that made me really angry. Um, that talked about how um, libraries have always been neutral, and we need to go back to having that stance of neutrality. And you know, woke librarians are everywhere. And the reason that we had that neutral stance um, was because we were largely an ahistorical profession where we didn't really look at ourselves. Um, We didn't really analyze what we were collecting. We saw librarians, I'm not going to say we because I've never seen myself in this role, but librarians um, historically did see their role as one to... um, as we've already talked about, to sort of spread this Western culture. And so that is not neutral. So we started from a non-neutral place, um, which was that we, we, we saw ourselves as being part of, um, of this Western project, that we were, we were Westernizing um, this country and we were civilizing it and we were bringing culture in. And so, so there's nothing very neutral to that. Um, but that narrative to say that it was neutral, um, that really works for people that that really um, it helps to keep funding coming in to say that we we don't really have a history um, or to say that we've always been this very traditional organization. Look at us continue to support us when you really delve into our history. We are not a traditional um, organization, really. We've. We've always been very involved in different different activist movements. And so when women's history started to be uncovered um, in the United States by women historians that included librarianship, what then happened is that, as is the case in almost all of these stories that we look at, is there was a huge backlash against that um, in which we, the profession decided that we needed to refocus on that neutrality in order to be taken seriously. And we bought into um, a lot of the ideas around neoliberalism and finding ways to make our libraries continue to grow. Um, And so to do that, librarians have often had to sort of hide themselves um, to sort of blend in to the background. Um, And so by by putting ourselves in the background in the way that we have tended to do, it's made it really easy for other people to say what our history is. Um, And so the men were the ones that were doing the writing. The men were the ones that led the libraries. The men were in the positions of power. And um, that's, that's just how it was for a really long time. And so we are now seeing um, a return to sort of uncovering this history. But what tends, what seems to happen in my research is that we do this for a few years and then we kind of stop for 20 or 30 years and then we do a little more. And so right now we're in a like doing this, trying to uncover history um, moment. And of course I worry that that's going to diminish um, and we'll sort of recede again. So we will see what happens. You know, we have the internet now, right? We can have, we have access to information all the time, whether or not that information is quality information is a problem we are definitely having a hard time uh, with as, as a people. So I, the, I guess the $6 million question is, is, you know, why are libraries important 
you know, historically, I, I think libraries are important, still are. Um, but I think some people would say, well, libraries definitely had a role to play, but now I just have the internet. I can, I can do this all myself. So what, what, what is the role of the library in, in this sort of modern age of everyone is an expert? First of all, I just want to ask you and everybody listening to think about Google and Amazon. Every major information-based tech invention that has created billionaires was built on top of the foundation laid by librarians and library science. And if you really think about it, it's absolutely true. Apple's knowledge bar was in place for decades in libraries. We called it the reference desk. Amazon built their first database using books after libraries had already figured out how to classify, purchase, and distribute books to readers regardless of location. In the 1800s and early 1900s, we had pack horse librarians going into the mountains and rural areas where cars could not easily go. Um, Google's attempt to catalog everything first was too late before they even started because libraries did it first. And yes, that does include cataloging the internet. Librarians have been user experience experts for many decades. So first I'll just say we're important because we built the information structure that everybody else relies on. So if nothing else, let's just pat the librarians on the back and say good job. But second and more importantly, if we move out of history, libraries are still the only information source with a mission to be free and accessible to everybody. It our being free and accessible, it is not a business goal for us. It's not about profit. It's because as a profession, we really do believe that information be, should be free and accessible. And we make a little tiny, we make very little money because that is the position that we have taken and held on to. As a profession and libraries spend massive amounts of money to buy or rent content from other information providers so that we can provide access without paywalls. Most of the content that people think they're getting for free is provided by a library. Um, and so we are this underpinning that's still there in the internet that people just really don't see. Um, and then we get into things like fake news. I have to tell you, librarians all over the country were crying when we start, first started hearing people talking about fake news because we've been teaching students how to combat that with information literacy for decades. And we still know those skills and can still provide those skills. So, so for me, <laughs> we'll just say the question is not really where we don't fit. And it's more about I'm trying to understand why more people don't understand the importance of libraries for democracy. So for me, it's not how, how do libraries fit. It's more about why don't people understand how we fit? The music you're hearing is by UW Tacoma Associate Teaching Professor Nicole Blair. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. You will find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pocket Casts. Mm -hmm.